Welcome to Season 7, Episode 2 of the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer by using the Story Grid method, developed by Sean Coyne. Each week we use a movie or a novel or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Kim Kessler and Leslie Watts. Now, before we begin, for anyone who's new here to the show, Leslie and I have started a side project that we're calling an UnPodcast, or UP, where we take various storytelling principles that we've been studying here on the roundtable, and we're applying them to my current novel, Immortal. It's an UnPodcast because it's available only to the subscribers of our mailing lists. So if learning how to put these principles into action is of interest to you, you can subscribe at valeriefrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. Okie dokie, now on with the show. (laughs) This week, I'm looking at Baby Driver in order to study the middle build of a story. This 2017 film was written and directed by Edgar Wright. As always, this is an adult conversation, and you will most likely hear some adult words. Okie dokie. Let's look at the beginning, the middle, and the end, a quick summary of each. In the beginning hook, when Baby gets a call to drive the getaway car for a heist, he's confronted with Bats, the antagonist, who doesn't believe in his ability. The job doesn't go as planned, and when Bats asks Baby whether he intentionally blocked his shot when he tried to kill somebody, Baby must decide whether to answer truthfully and risk Bats' wrath, or lie and hopefully calm the waters. Baby lies, and while Bats doesn't believe him, he lets it go. Baby finishes paying his debt to Doc and believes that he can now leave the criminal world behind. In the middle build, Doc recruits Baby under duress to do yet another heist. When Bats kills Doc's gun suppliers and fencemen, Baby must decide whether to out Bats and call off the heist or remain quiet and let the heist go off as scheduled. He says nothing and tries to escape to meet Deborah. He's caught, so of course the heist will still go off as planned. And in the ending payoff. When the heist inevitably goes wrong, big shocker there, Bats and Darling are killed. Baby gets Joe to safety and tries to escape with Deborah. Now, if you haven't watched this movie yet, you have no idea who these people are. So you really need to watch this movie. Trust me, it'll be worth your while. Uh, Doc is killed, helping them get away. But first, he must deal with Buddy, who is seeking revenge for Darling's death. When Baby and Deborah do finally escape Atlanta, they're stopped by the Mounties trying to cross the Canadian border. Baby must decide whether to try and outrun the Mounties or surrender to face the music. And of course he's caught by the Mounties because the Mounties always get their man. (laughs) Um, Baby surrenders and is sentenced to 25 years. He's paroled after five and finally drives off into the sunset with Deborah. Now, what's the genre of Baby Driver? Well, the genre is at best murky. (laughs) moviegoers would most certainly call this an action film. And I can totally see why. However, when we look at this story through the story grid lens, it falls somewhere between a crime story because of all these heists and a thriller. And then in the end, the love story subgenre kind of just takes over. So it's, I don't know, heisty, thrillery, love story kind of thing. (laughs) That's my professional opinion. 
Now we're watching this movie this week because my daughter recommended it to me. And she was right. Baby Driver is absolutely a fun movie. And I, I, I really can see why she liked it. This is a terrific example of playing to the strengths of the medium. Now, stories can be told as part of the oral tradition or on the screen through film or television and on stage or on a page through novels or short stories and so forth. One form of storytelling isn't necessarily better than another, but each one has its strengths and its weaknesses. That means that some stories will work better in one medium than in another. For example, stories on a page, novels and short stories, allow the reader to get right into the protagonist's head so the reader knows exactly what's going on uh, with the character, what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Stories told on a screen, especially a big screen, shine when they're visually pleasing. They appeal to our sense of sight and sound. And Baby Driver certainly delivers on both of these counts. The car chases are fun and innovative, and the music is fantastic. The filmmakers actually choreographed the scenes and had the soundtrack playing while the actors were doing their thing. So if you pay attention, you'll notice that the gunshots are rhythmic and in time with the music. The wiper blades on Baby's getaway car is in time with the music. So is the raindrops, the footsteps, Everything going on in the scene is happening as part of a rhythm, even when Baby is making a peanut butter sandwich in the, uh, in the beginning of the story. Of course, Baby Driver also tapped into the star power that you can do when you're in Hollywood to attract an audience. And of course, this is something else that this film, that film and television can do. So Baby Driver gets a gold star, in my opinion, for playing to all of the strengths of the medium that it's told in. However, if you scratch the surface at all, this story starts to fall apart really quickly. Structurally, it isn't sound. Well, certainly not as sound as it could be. I don't see this movie as a spoof, but it is campy. So those who like camp will enjoy the flat, stereotypical characters and dreadful dialogue. And it really is dreadful. I don't happen to be one of those people, so even on the first viewing, I had to make a conscious effort to ignore that stuff and focus on the music and the presentation of the story at a really high level. And of course, I already talked about the fact that the genre isn't particularly well-defined. All right, so be that as it may, this week I'm going to take a close look at the middle build of Baby Driver in light of Sean's recent approach to breaking the second act down into two parts. We'll call these two parts Middle Build 1 and Middle Build 2. In Middle Build 1, the hero has crossed into the extraordinary world and is doing his best to navigate it using the skill, knowledge, tools, and experience that he's brought with him from the ordinary world. This is what Sean calls the hero's Code 1.0. And it works for a while, But as he encounters new obstacles and complications, his tried and true methods become less and less effective. Eventually, he hits a point where none of his old tricks work. His old belief structures don't work, and the story takes a sharp turn. This is the point that, here on the podcast, we've been calling the midpoint shift. And this is what throws the hero into chaos. Middle Build 2 
is this phase of chaos. Since none of the hero's usual approaches work, he's making it up as he goes along. He's flying by the seat of his pants, just trying any way he can to get his object of desire. Things spiral out of control until at last he hits an all-is-lost moment, after which he then moves into the ending payoff of the story. You've heard us talking about the story spine having 15 core scenes, and it does. But for those who struggle through that middle build, Sean has now given us a method of navigating this huge part of our stories, this half of our stories. If you choose to break the middle build down into two parts, you'll be creating a spine with 20 core scenes. So usually we have 15. If you want to break the middle build into two parts, you'll have 20 core scenes. Now, really, in my opinion, if you're in the planning phase of your novel, I recommend starting with the 15 core scenes because it's a higher level view. It's a more macro view of your story. Once you nail that down, you can add the other five scenes. Of course, the 20 core scenes are the five commandments of storytelling in each of the acts. Five in the beginning hook, five in middle build one, five in middle build two, and five in the ending payoff. All right, let's look at middle build one and two using Baby Driver as an example. Remember, middle build one is still going to be about 25% of your story, and it's the hero's code 1.0. The inciting incident of middle build one is when it's clear that the protagonist protagonist is in a whole new world. Things aren't going as they usually do, but the hero thinks his usual approach to the world will work. Remember, his goal is to get his life back to the way it was. In Baby Driver, the inciting incident of Middle Build One happens at about the 45-minute mark, which in my opinion is kind of late. And it actually follows a 15-minute love story sequence, which makes you feel like all of a sudden you're in a love story because you have this half hour of heisty stuff, then suddenly 15 minutes of a love story, then suddenly you're back into heisty stuff. Doc arrives on the scene. It's actually a date that that baby is on with Deborah, and he gives baby a best bad choice option of working for him again or having everything he loves taken away from him. Obviously, baby decides to drive for him again. The turning point progressive complication of middle build one is when the hero becomes the target of the villain. And the villain here is Bats. The antagonist is right at home in this environment, whereas the protagonist isn't. This is why we say that the middle bill belongs to the villain. The villain has home court advantage, right? Because the the extraordinary world is where he's from. In Baby Driver, as I said, the villain is Bats, and Baby becomes his target during the explanation of the, the second heist when they're having that meeting. The crisis of middle build one is should the protagonist comply or defy the antagonist? And this in the film is should baby talk back to bats when he's confronted or not? Baby keeps his mouth shut and doesn't confront bats during the meeting or when he steals the gum or when he's told to get out of the car and follow them at the gun purchase. Now the climax of middle build one is when the villain asserts his power and to quote Sean, It is such a monstrous execution of force that the protagonist's behavioral toolkit fails. The protagonist is overwhelmed and responds in a way that the antagonist does not anticipate. This, of course, is at that big shootout when they're going to 
buy guns from Doc's crooked cops. Bats starts the shootout, but Baby doesn't say a word, which Bats finds curious. And the resolution of the middle build, of middle build one, is when there's no way out for the protagonist. It's an irreversible change event of the global story. When the hero falls into chaos, everyone in the story falls into chaos. The protagonist has no idea how to act now. I think middle bill one ends after that diner scene because baby does not know how to handle having the criminals in the diner. His two worlds are colliding there, right? So the shootout combined with this diner scene solidifies what we call the midpoint shift. Baby is thoroughly in chaos. And from this point on, we see that the lives of Doc, Bats, Buddy, Darling, Deborah, and Joe are also thrown into chaos. This is really fascinating stuff. Now we're going into middle bill two, which is when the hero is in chaos. The question the audience is asking and the question that we as the writers are trying to figure out is how will the hero climb out of the chaos he's fallen into as a result of the resolution of Middle Build 1? The inciting incident of Middle Build 2 is as follows, and this is another quote from Sean. The protagonist experiences a mysterious encounter with an unexplainable event. Something happens to the protagonist that can be positive or negative, but it's random and transformational. The protagonist and the antagonist contend with the unexplained event in ways that counterbalance each other's response. So the hero accepts chaos, but the villain believes his worldview is so perfect that he denies it. He believes he can do and control anything. So the inciting incident of Middle Bill 2 of Baby Driver is when Doc calls off the heist. Buddy's and Darling's verbal response confirmed that this is unexpected. And Baby's and Bats's physical response confirm that calling off the heist is unexpected. And of course, this happens when they return from the shootout. And Bats says that the cops fired first. And it's actually Bats who convinces Doc to keep the heist in play. Now, the turning point of MB2 is when the protagonist suffers a significant setback and despairs that all is lost. The significant setback in Baby Driver is when Bats finds Baby's tape recorder. The tapes are discovered in Joe's apartment, so now Baby knows that both Joe and Deborah are in jeopardy. And he's at risk of losing the recording of his mother, and that's the only thing he has to remember her by. The crisis of Middle Bill 2, or MB2, is actually the global story crisis. So this would be the crisis that you list in the 15 core scenes, that you know the five commandments that you have for the middle build on your 15 core scenes. Well, the crisis there is the crisis of middle build too. Hope that makes sense. So in Baby Driver, it's does Baby tell the truth about what he does with the recordings or not, which is a pretty weak crisis for a middle build, but anyway. That's what it is. Uh, the climax is whether is when the hero decides to face the villain or not, according to the story that you're telling. And in Baby Driver, it's when Baby tells the truth about the recordings, but tries to protect Joe and his coveted recording of his mother's singing by saying that he lives really far away. 
the resolution then is when the hero prepares for battle, makes preparations, says last goodbyes and all that good stuff. In Baby Driver, it's when they hear the recordings and Baby is thrown off the job, but to protect Deborah, he insists he remain on the job. And that means that he has to stand Deborah up. We see her waiting in the diner at 2 a.m. and Baby didn't show up. So hopefully this breakdown of the middle build into two parts gives you a strategy for tackling the middle build of your own work in progress. And if you want to learn more about how to break a story down into two parts, um, I strongly suggest that you go get Action Story, The Primal Genre by Sean Coyne. You can find it on the StoryGrid website, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Go get it and study it, and then start applying it to other stories that are in the same genre that you're writing in. Okie dokie. That's enough for me. <laughs> Kim has some really interesting stuff she's going to talk about in uh, the core event in a crime story versus a thriller. So Kim, what do you got for us? So this film was a lot of fun for me all the way up until the ending, which left me feeling meh. I have some theories as to why, and it boils down to the core event and core emotion of what I was set up to expect and then what actually happened. And I'll walk you through my precise experience momentarily, but first let's recap the importance of the core event, which actually begins at the beginning. The aspects of the story revealed at the beginning of a story prompts a question in the reader's mind, and this question is specific to the genre. As story elements are introduced, the human need and life values at stake are signaled to the reader's subconscious. We pick up what they're putting down. As events take place, the change of these needs and values, say from positive to negative, negative to positive, or negative to double negative, it makes us feel things, and that's the core emotion. It's this emotional feeling experience that makes us expect future events and future feelings, which are then satisfied or not when those expectations are paid off. This ultimate moment is known as the core event, when the global life values are most at stake, meaning the protagonist has the most to gain and the most to lose. It is also a microcosm for the global genre and an expression of the controlling idea and theme all roads lead to the core event, or at least they should. Now let's look more closely at what we, or at least what I, experienced in Baby Driver. Now, for the majority of the film, I'm not entirely sure what I'm watching, but I'm enjoying it. Something in my audience brain is tracking a fun-loving heist story, which is a particular subgenre of crime, and it's similar to a caper, which is a subgenre that we've analyzed quite a bit on the show. Um, but it's one of those many crime genres where the criminal rather than the investigator is the protagonist. So that's what I'm thinking is going on. But there's something else going on too, and I can't quite put my finger on it. It's as if the antagonist changes. In the beginning hook, there's this guy from the first crew who gives Baby a hard time and messes with his sunglasses, to which he seems to have a never-ending supply of. And then later, it's Bats, um, which we get some repeat complications with that and then the way that he gives him a hard time again um, before they actually do progress, as Valerie has described. And then there's a switcheroo in the ending payoff where the antagonist becomes Buddy. And this is actually a guy who stuck up for Baby earlier. But of course, now he wants revenge for the loss of his wife. Now, all the while, we're not really sure about Doc. It's sometimes as if he's fair to Baby and sometimes he's an overlord. Um, we do get a whiff of death um, 
earlier on in the film when we see what happens to the guy who botched the job by leaving his shotgun behind when they switched cars. So it could be a thriller with stakes of life and death. Baby faces forces of antagonism that he can't seem to escape from and that are confusing. You know, are these people friend or foe? But I'm still not feeling all that primed for a thriller, and I'm expecting a crime caper-like story where the primary question is, will the criminal be discovered? Will they get away with their crime? Will justice be served? Okay, so that's three questions, but you get what I mean. And because our protagonist is the criminal, we feel differently about the answer of, you know, will justice be served? We're rooting for our criminal to get away with it. On this side of the coin, the most positive value of justice would actually be poetic justice. And the core motion of crime is intrigue, or as I like to think of it as fascination, about, wow, how do they pull this off? And then ultimately, there's a sense of justice and satisfaction um, that security, there's that sense of security that the world makes sense when justice is served the way that it should be. Now, the core event for a crime story is the exposure of the criminal, which would then be followed by a brought to justice or escapes justice scene, which serves as the global resolution of the story. But Again, that's just not what we experience in Baby Driver. The genre flips to be much more of the thriller in the ending payoff with a hero at the mercy of the villain scene with this core emotion of excitement where Baby and Deborah are in the parking garage and they're at the mercy of Buddy. This feels like the core event of the story. There definitely is a height of excitement and the life and death stakes are the highest that they've been. But it's just not the one that... I expected. And I wasn't really prepared for it. I didn't really understand where it was going and it just felt sort of out of tone or I don't know, just just different. So in this moment together, Baby and Deborah defeat Buddy and then they're headed out of town as Valerie had mentioned. They're on the run um, until they run into and I was I had it listed here as a police roadblock on the bridge, but it's not. It's the Mounties and Valerie made it very clear that that's an important distinction. So um, so now that they're blocked in from both sides with nowhere to go, um, Baby makes his decision not to run anymore in order to save Deborah from the fate that he has experienced um, in his life. And while this is sweet, and you guys know I'm a sucker for the sweet stuff, it still was like a letdown to me. He turns himself in and it just feels ordinary. So then we've got the people testify on Baby's behalf. He gets sentenced to 25 years with a chance for parole after five. And then lo and behold, Deborah is waiting for him with a classic convertible so they can drive off into the sunset together. And like I said, it's sweet, but I just wanted more. It's like it wasn't sweet enough to be meaningful. I wanted poetic justice for Baby. And you know, while I've been having this intellectual battle with myself um, and the genre and the core event and the life values of the story – when it comes down to it, the ending just left me emotionally unsatisfied. Now, the genre mashiness, mashiness, is that a word? Yep, it is now. Um, it feels very Edgar Wright, um, which is something that we witnessed when we studied Hot Fuzz way back in the day, um, where he, he likes to do this. He pulls this stuff together. He makes really fun movies. Um, so while this is not an unsatisfying movie, it's just not the Cracker Jack ending that I wanted. So the next, this really leads me to this point that I was kind of surprised to uncover. So we want to consider not only the power of our core event, but what comes after your core event. 
and be sure that even if you pay off the reader's core emotion expectations in that peak moment of the core event, that you don't let them down after. There's a psychological heuristic um, known as the recency effect where people are most likely to remember the the last part of an experience. Um, and I'll put a link to a couple nerdy Wikipedia pages in the show notes if you want to check this stuff out. Um, but basically, you know, we don't remember the entirety of an experience, right? You know, sometimes we have – there's a primacy effect where maybe you remember the first part. There's a recency effect where you remember the last part. But in general, there's going to be these moments that you, that's really what's pulling on you and what you remember. So nail your core event, but don't forget to nail your ending also. Yeah, you got to stick the landing, right? <laughs> That's um it's really interesting Kim because before we started to record I watched the movie first and I didn't want to say anything to you or Leslie because I, I didn't want to influence your your opinion on it or your view of it but you had the same feeling that I did that sure it was lots of fun but something funky about that ending. So thank you very much for taking a look at the core event and uh, letting us know your thoughts there. Ms. Leslie, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about point of view and narrative device. Take it away. Well, it feels like I'm a little on the edge today, but uh, but we'll see how it shakes out. Of course, yes, I'm continuing my study of point of view and narrative device because there's just still a lot to uncover. So as I've mentioned before, if genre is what your story is about, then point of view and narrative device are how you present it to your reader or the movie audience in this case. So I'll include links to my bite-sized episode on narrative device and Fundamental Fridays articles in the show notes, but also be on the lookout for my beat on point of view and narrative device coming out later this year. Now, I like to begin my inquiry with the narrative problem presented by the premise. So what's the premise here? The premise is three elements, a character in a particular setting with a problem. Here, Baby is a young man in Atlanta who made a mistake as a child that hooked him into a life of crime. He wants to pay off his debt that he owes to a criminal mastermind so he can survive, avoid prison, and find a more meaningful life. Although the story involves a great deal of sensory spectacle with car and pedestrian chases and several songs, we're laser focused on how Baby responds to the forces of antagonism around him, which includes the other criminals, the police, to a lesser extent, Joe, who is his foster father and doesn't approve of Baby's involvement with the criminal gang, and to a greater extent, the global environment that put all of the circumstances of his situation in play. Now, I want to mention the reality leaf of the story grid genre clover just briefly because it presents an interesting question here that actually is a clue to me about the point of view and narrative device. The choreographed quality of the action in this film feels a bit fantastical. You might even say it has a kind of nostalgic filter or atmosphere, and it feels like fond memories. So keep that in mind as we, as we go. 
If you keep all of these characteristics in mind, then we need a point of view and narrative device that allow us to empathize with baby as he participates in crimes where people are killed. It also raises an interesting societal question about how culpable the getaway driver is for the actions of the gunman, but that's a completely different issue. Again, we're narrowly focused on baby. In fact, I remember only one scene that takes place outside of his presence when Deborah is waiting for him at the diner, but it could very easily have been his imagining what she was doing at the time. This situation is challenging because it's a film, so we can't read baby's mind through except through a voiceover, which we don't get here. Um, So we have to consider only what he says and does as evidence of what he's thinking. So what's the point of view? Well, this is a film and that can be challenging to identify, but for some reason, my intuition locked in on this very quickly. Now, keep in mind that this involves a fair bit of speculation, and reasonable minds might differ on this point. But the clues in the film point to selective omniscience for me. This is also known as close third person point of view. It's not the godlike narrator moving from mind to mind and place to place and speaking to us directly, but rather, this is the mind of the character unburdened by self-conscious first-person narration for the benefit of a different audience. And to me, this is what reveals the story. It seems like an odd choice for an intense action-driven story, but follow my thought line here and hopefully it will make sense. The clues that lead me to this conclusion are the fact that we hear baby's tinnitus anytime music isn't playing. He suffered an accident as a young child, and as a result, suffers from tinnitus all the time, which is part of the reason why he's got earbuds in his ears almost all the time. So when we can't hear, for example, when Buddy fires a gun near baby's ears, when he can't hear, rather, we can't hear. We experience the events as he would, but with a bit of a twist. And this is where the reality genre comes into play for me. The action, whether baby is driving a car, walking to get coffee, or running from the police, has the feel of a very well-planned choreography. Now, that was an intentional choice that Edgar Wright made in this film. We've got, as Valerie pointed out, we've got music playing most of the time, and Baby's actions are almost always timed to the beat of the music, right down to when he slams a car door or breaks a window to steal a car. It all feels a little too perfect for reality. And again, it takes on that fantastical quality, maybe of one remembering events from the past in an idealized way. 
So that's my view of the point of view. What's the narrative device? My take on the narrative device is that it's Baby recalling the events that led to his imprisonment. In a way, the purpose seems similar to Simo in Wolves of Corellia, which we discussed last season. It seems to me to be a kind of accounting to decide if the choices and sacrifices he made were worth it. So the who would be Baby's mind. To whom is the story being told would also be Baby. As I said, he appears to be assessing the result of his actions. Now, when and where is the story being told? I think it's within his mind and that he's going through an exercise while he's in prison after the events portrayed in the story. So it's as if Baby is listening to music while in prison that reminds him of the events that he's considering. In what form is the story told? These are thoughts, or more specifically, memories. It's as if Baby is reviewing an internal record in the form of a film complete with a soundtrack. Now, I want to say a little something about narrative distance here. Normally, when we think of narrative distance, we think of where the narrator is in relation to the characters and events of the story, both in terms of location and time. Therefore, we think about the vantage point from which the reader can experience the story. But something I stumbled upon in the rhetoric of fiction by Wayne C. Booth has me thinking about this differently. Booth explains that there's a moral distant or differences between the reader's morality and that of the characters within the story. This is particularly important here where we have a young man engaged in criminal activities against the advice of his foster father and mentor. And the audience needs sufficient details presented in a way that we forgive him for this choice, for his participation. And the narrative device and point of view need to evoke significant empathy. Selective omniscient, where we get the story from baby's point of view, helps us root for him even as he's participating in violent crime. So to me, this makes the ending make sense. He shouldn't get away with his crimes. It's unfortunate that he was swept up in this environment of criminal activity, but he's not blameless. So his capture at the end gives us a sense that the world is to a certain extent righting wrongs, particularly because he chooses to sacrifice himself for Deborah's freedom. Okay, so why is the story being told? Again, there appears to be a certain level of assessment going on. The baby wants to know if his sacrifice was worth it. But it could also be that he's playing the mental record to cope with his surroundings and remind him of what it could be like if and when he's released. Either way, the controlling idea or theme for the story feels like his takeaway as a result of the story. So what's the controlling idea? 
Well, in my mind, this is a global thriller story. The heist setup seems more like a vehicle for the thriller and baby's internal shift. And that being the case, I identify the controlling idea this way. Life is preserved when young criminals express their gifts of communication and choreography, formerly leveraged by a violent crime boss, to save innocent victims from death and themselves from damnation. So my final question in my inquiry is how well does the point of view and narrative device choice solve the problem presented by the premise? Well, it worked really well for me. And I have to say, I'm not a huge fan of films with chase scenes, but they were so well choreographed and aligned with the story and the point of view and narrative device that I was drawn in immediately and didn't feel bored by the spectacle, which usually happens. So a great deal of the success of, you know, pulling me into the story seems to be attributed to the point of view and narrative device. So I would say it works pretty well. It's interesting, isn't it, that we can still enjoy a movie when that, when we look beneath the hood, we see all these problems, like he never did express his gift, the tapes didn't really have anything to do with the story, but yet, like that sort of stuff seems to be a job hazard for us. <laughs> so we've got to decide when, whenever we come to a story that we loved in the past, and we start to analyze it from a story grid point of view, or from a from an editor's point of view, or even from a writer's point of view, and we start to see flaws in it, we've got to decide for ourselves, everyone individually for ourselves, whether we're still going to love the story, flaws and all, right? Warts and all, do we still like it? And um, I don't feel the need to watch Baby Driver again. I've seen it three times, and I, I think that's plenty for that movie, but I enjoyed it. But it was the choreography, Leslie, like you say, that really fascinated me and the spectacle of it all, which was a lot of fun. Okay, so we like to round out our discussions with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. So, Kim, what have you learned from Baby Driver this week? So my takeaway today is that the core emotion should peak in the core event, but the resolution is the final part of the story that we experience, so it should be crafted with just as much intention. Okay, and my takeaway is fairly mundane here. I shouldn't be, but I'm surprised over and over how vital point of view and narrative choices are in a story. So we have a story here that doesn't work so well on a lot of levels, but the point of view and narrative device, I feel like they really nailed, and that makes the story salvageable. Now imagine if you had a really great point of view and narrative device choice and a really well-structured story that nails the genre, then you've got a really great story. And for me, the key takeaway, and I guess it's a reinforcement of something that I knew before this, but this was a really great example of it, is that each of the different types of stories or the, the media that we tell the stories through, they have their own strengths and weaknesses. So you might have an idea for a story that doesn't work so well in novel form, but it would work really well in film form. Like Try to imagine Baby Driver as a novel. I don't think it would work. 
<laughs> it, it excels in film, but I think it would fall really flat in novel form. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from one of our fellow StoryGrid certified editors, Tanya Lovetti, and she posted this in our StoryGrid Guild. Tanya asks about the similarities and differences between the love story obsession subgenre and erotic thriller. Well, the obvious answer here, Tanya and everyone listening, is that they're two totally different global genres, <laughs> which means they have different spectrum of values, different core events, different emotions, different spines, different conventions and obligatory scenes and all that good stuff. I think where the confusion is coming in, and, and this happens a lot uh, to, to a lot of clients I work with and, and writers I talk to in the Guild Forum and you know in other events, it's this genre confusion because any given story could have a number of genres in it, right? And where this really hit home for me was when we did Hidden Figures way back when. I can't even remember which, which uh, season it was even in. But even if a story has elements of different genres in it, only one of them is global. So what I would challenge you to do is really think about the story that you're writing and ask yourself, what, what's the core emotion? Is it excitement or is it romance? What's the core event? Is it a proof of love? Well, then maybe it would be more of a, a love story. What is your story really about? Because in an obsession love story, you can have something that is quite thrilling, but it's not necessarily a thriller. In an erotic thriller, you can have the, the love story part of it can be an obsessive love story part of it, but it's not necessarily. So you really need to look at the masterworks that you have in mind and compare them and see how they are similar or different. The other thing I would challenge you to consider is your definition of erotica. Now, this was an eye-opener for me because I've come to learn that it's, it's super, super subjective. For some people, if there's sex in a book at all, it's erotica because the books that they're used to reading are written by people who leave their readers at the bedroom door, right? You're geared up for this romance and this love story and the sex scene, and then the characters go into the room and boom, the door closes and we're left outside. We don't actually get to go into the bedroom with the characters. Um, and the reason is because sex scenes are really hard to write. So most writers just avoid them at all costs. <laughs> and that means that when you've got a book like Outlander, when that thing comes along, well, people get all excited and they get all giggly and they get all enthusiastic and they tell their friends about it because it's very titillating. <laughs> but for other people, Outlander isn't erotica at all. It's, it might be steamy, but it's not erotica. So there's no hard and fast definition that I've come across anyway in terms of the book publishing world as to what constitutes erotica or not. And I don't think there's a right or wrong definition, but you have to know what your limits are as a writer, and then you need to know what your reader's limits are, because then that factors into marketing and which category you're going to put it into on, you know, the Amazon categories and all that kind of stuff. So really nail down... <laughs> It's really hard to talk about erotica without making it sound like I'm talking about something else, but really try to pinpoint what your definition of erotica is, what level of 
steaminess you're comfortable writing in, and then find, again, find masterworks like the type of story that you have in mind and do an analysis of them. You're, you're one of the editors. You totally can do this analysis. Look at the story spine. Look at the obligatory scenes and conventions in the story. What's the core emotion? What's the core event? That'll tell you whether it's a, a thrilling obsession love story or it's, or, or it's a thriller that has a strong love story in it. I hope that helps to answer your question. If not, you know where to find me. <laughs> if you have a question about middle bills or any other story principle, you can ask it to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Thank you so much, Leslie and Kim, for your excellent editorial insights, as always, into Baby Driver. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to tackle the middle build of your own story. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes as well. And remember, if you're interested in hearing how I'm applying these storytelling principles to my own writing, you can join me and Leslie on the Unpodcast or Up by subscribing at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Now join us next time when Leslie will look again at point of view and narrative device in The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, adapted into the 2013 film directed by Baz Luhrmann. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.